This podcast is part of the Telerik Developer Network. Telerik by Progress. Hello and welcome to Eat Sleep Code, the official Telerik podcast. I'm your host, Ed Charbonneau, and today we have a special episode recorded in front of a live audience here at... Hope you enjoy the show. Okay, guys. So welcome to the mobile strategy panel. Uh, my name is Ed Charbonneau. I work for Telerik or Progress. Uh, developers seem to know us better as Telerik from the, uh, the brand of uh, .NET products that we've built over the years. Uh, but now we are Progress, and I work for Progress as a developer advocate, and part of my job is to do uh, stuff like this and record a podcast. And I also work with uh, some of these panel members here. We'll start with uh, Mr. Sam Basu here. Uh, Sam, want to introduce yourself? Sure thing. So, uh, good morning, guys, and thanks for being here. Uh, so, my name is Sam Basu. I unfortunately happen to work with Ed. Uh, I'm also a developer advocate uh, uh, for the Telerik products at Progress and uh, longtime Microsoft.NET uh, guy, but also step into web and mobile. Um, so, that's me. And next, we have Nick Landry. Nick works for Microsoft. Nick, uh, tell us a little bit about you. My name is Nick Landry. I'm a technical evangelist, which is the original term for developer advocate. And, um, but it's the same thing in the so end. You, you, you don't call it different. But. You don't <laughs> preach at a church anymore? <laughs> Come on. So yeah, I'm a technical evangelist for Microsoft. Uh, I've been in Microsoft for three and a half years. Uh, prior to that, I was a, uh, an MVP, uh, on the Microsoft MVP for 10 years. I've been in this business for about 25 years now. Speaking of mobility, I've been doing mobility for 15 years now or as I like to call it, five years before the iPhone came out. So it was a very different landscape back then. Uh, today I focus on cross-platform mobility, but uh, beyond mobile, I also do uh, IoT, both server-side with the cloud and client-side with electronics. I also do um, conversation as a platform, including like the session I just did with bot framework, digital assistance, computer speech, natural language processing, and cognitive services. And um, if you saw my session yesterday morning, my last pillar of specialty that I've been focusing on for a year now is mixed reality, specifically with the HoloLens, which is, in a way, another form of mobile development. So that's what I do. And uh, next up, we have Mike Branstein. Mike is a Louisville local here working for Kaizen. Mike? Yeah, thanks very much. Hi, Mike Branstein. I'm a developer. Some of my areas of specialty are particularly .NET. I've been doing .NET since .NET was .NET and been recently getting into mobile and wrote a book on NativeScript, one of Telerik's products on mobile, which will be published soon. Other areas of specialty are TFS. do a lot of, with build and release automation on TFS. I really love that, and along with the DevOps and Agile spaces. So I'm excited to be here and really get real about mobile. Do you need hugs, Mike, with TFS? I, oh, I always need hugs. <laughs> uh, so the green text, guys, by the way, that's our Twitter handles. So if we are done with this and if you still want to ask us questions, keep the conversation going, just ping us anytime. We're always on. Absolutely. Uh, we're going to get into some back and forth discussion here. I think we're going to kick things off with a little bit of each individual specialty first. Uh, Sam, why don't you give us a little bit of an overview? Yeah, so... Um, this is one of the slides I use to kind of give folks an overview of all the different options you have, and then we'll kind of dive into uh, Xamarin. I know Nick can speak to Xamarin quite a bit as well. So uh, I think when you look at building a mobile app today, um, there are lots of ways in which you can do it. It uh, all depends on the, techn the technology stack that you pick really depends on your skills as a developer and the type of app that you're building, the type of audience that you're trying to target, and what kind of code base you want to keep maintaining. Um, so maybe this is my one minute speed on all the different ways in which we can go about it. Uh, so the lowest hanging fruit sometimes is mobile web. If you have a website, and we'll talk about responsive maybe in a bit, uh, there is no reason why the website cannot work nicely on a mobile device. There are lots of frameworks that help you out. Uh, so that's the easiest thing. The, uh, the hardest thing maybe on the other side of the spectrum is native. Uh, you can target native apps for iOS, Android, and Windows. The challenge is these are three distinctly different platforms with distinctly different IDs and programming paradigms. So it's hard for one individual to kind of learn all of these things. 
it's actually harder for enterprises to maintain three different teams with three different skill sets and yet have one app uh, from a, a three different code bases. So that, that gets hard. But I mean, I'm a huge fan of Native, as I'm sure Nick is. Uh, you get closest to the metal, best possible developer experience and user experience, but it's hard, right? So that's when you kind of look into going kind of cross-platform options. Um, if you look at cross-platform options, it again depends on the uh, technologies that you are already familiar with. If you already do web stuff, there are lots of options for you. Um, you guys may have, uh, you guys may remember PhoneGap days or Cordova, that's the open source framework. Uh, the idea is you will use web uh, assets and web skills like HTML, CSS, JavaScript, package up your app, put it in the store. Uh, your app essentially runs inside of a giant web view for each platform. The user doesn't know it if you are doing a good job. Uh, so that's the hybrid approach of doing things. And that is cross-platform from a single code base. But hybrid sometimes I think gets a little dinged on performance because you can go buy uh, phones which are not running the latest OS and the browsers are a little sucky. So your app is uh, just runs a little uh, with a little lag. So then you look to uh, actually make native apps, but yet from a single code base. So cross-platform native apps. And I think you've got a couple of options here. Uh, in the last couple of years, we have seen the JavaScript native side of things really pick up steam. Uh, I mean, I'm sure Mike will talk more about this, uh, but this is where you're using true uh, JavaScript or Angular uh, or, or TypeScript to make native mobile apps that are also cross-platform. So you have several frameworks in there that, that help you out. And then for us uh, .NET developers who have invested our time in the last several years in C Sharp and XAML, if that's your thing, I think, uh, the boat has sort of sailed with Xamarin, which uh, they do a tremendous job of letting you write uh, your code in the IDs and in the languages that you're comfortable in and cross-compile them down to native apps for iOS, Android, and Windows, Mac, uh, smart TVs, smartwatches, you name it. So it's uh, it's quite a gamut of options, and uh, we'll, well dive into more about Xamarin. One thing that'd be important to point out, since most of the audience here is not doing mobile development yet, is to recap quickly also, what tools do you use to build native apps? Because, for example, if you're if you're an Android developer, then you're going to be using Java as your primary platform to build Android apps with the Android SDK. Historically, you were using Eclipse as the IDE, but in recent years, um, Google has adopted uh, Android Studio, which is based on JetBrains IntelliJ, to actually build your Android applications. Uh, the whole build system is complete, can be completely different. It uses Gradle. And so it's a whole mindset you have to get into of like Java, Android SDK, Android Studio. And you can do this on both Windows or a Mac. If you're building for iOS, then you have to be on a Mac. That's, that's an absolute certainty. It's an Apple rule. The only way that you are allowed to compile an iOS package is using Apple's tools, running on Apple's operating system, running on Apple's hardware. You cannot get around that. And um, the tool is Xcode. That's Apple's IDE. The language is started with Objective-C. Maybe someone can close the door back there. Um, the, the, the language is going to be either Objective-C historically, which is now losing favor because, let's face it, it's Objective-C. Um, and it's been replaced by Swift, where Objective-C is still supported, of course. Swift is the new language that Apple has created. Um, and uh, it was later open sourced as well. And you can not only do this on a Mac, they have their own SDK for it. And then for the Windows applications, and when we say Windows, let's immediately clarify something. Windows is a big world, okay? There's the desktop applications, the traditional like Win32 apps that we've been building for years. We're not talking about those today. We're only talking about the, the store side of things. I don't want to just use the term mobile because a Windows Store app can run on a desktop, can run everywhere. So it's what we call the universal Windows platform. It's what used to be called WinRT in Windows 8 days. So, and it's got roots also in Windows Phone and everything. So a Windows 10 application is going to be built in Visual Studio using C Sharp. And you can also, to an extent, use things like VB or F Sharp. But C Sharp is pretty much the primary language. It comes with its own SDK. So that's why now, if you want to be a, a mobile developer, you got to know all this <laughs> or the other options we're going to be discussing here. Yeah, I, th so. I think you made a good point, too. I, I think mobile in general is getting to be a very fuzzy term. We have a lot of devices that are mobile, uh, but they don't necessarily uh, 
showed themselves as a small candy bar sized device. I mean, yep. we have things like HoloLens and IoT devices that have uh, different types of inputs. We have um, uh, speakers that are mobile but have personal assistance on them. So the the topic can really get to be uh, wide ranging. And even like the iPad Pro is kind of chasing the laptop market now. Yeah. And they're trying to turn it into a true laptop replacement, which I won't comment on that. Um, but the bottom line is it's iOS. So if you want to build for that, it's more almost of a laptop application you're writing, but you're still using those same iOS tools. And Android isn't just your phones and your tablets. There's watches. There's TVs. Mm -hmm. All of the Android Set top boxes. Um, yeah, everything. Yes. So the, so the question is, can the iPad Pro really be a productivity device and your laptop's replacement? It's, it's subjective, really. Um, the iPad is a great consumption device. This is where I have to give you my personal opinion. opinion. I'm not speaking for Microsoft on this one. Um, but from what I've read, it's basically what makes or breaks a platform, right? It's the apps. It's the apps, but it's also the, the model of the operating system. iOS was designed to be a very siloed environment where apps are isolated from one another. And let's face it, when you're on a productivity device like a Mac or a Windows machine, uh, you want to have access to your entire file system, manage everything in there, and then launch one app or another to do your work, switching around. And this is something where, uh, frankly, Apple is still playing catch up. On, in terms of functionality to both Windows and even, honestly, to Mac OS. Mac OS is much more of a desktop and a laptop operating system than iOS is. But I think Apple also sees that iOS is much more popular than Mac OS. So I don't know what they're going to do. Some, some people speculated they might merge them. I can't speak for our competitors, to be honest with you. Uh, and Apple is also a partner, not just a competitor. But the bottom line is uh, Tim Cook said he was not going to merge them. I don't think they are. Others so, are saying that iOS is going to be the platform of the future and macOS is going to get deprecated, but who knows? You would have to ask Apple. One of the things we haven't seen is the Mac operating system pick up touch in any useful way. Uh, so you know, it'd be hard to see that that operating system be a mobile type of a device. Yeah, so I think to, to answer your question, I think it depends on the audience. Like my mom doesn't really need a computer anymore. If she's all she's doing is office and web stuff, the iPad Pro is just fine. So, like we developers may not consider that to be a productivity device, but for a majority of folks, it is. So it all depends on who the target audience is. And also, I mean, yeah, yeah, we also believe in it. We put Office on it. Yeah. In fact, when they announced the iPad Pro, Apple had actually invited one of our, of our Microsoft executives on stage at an Apple event. I know at that point, like. The temperature in hell was probably mm -hmm. minus 10 or something. That happened back in 1984. Because, yeah, time. it was basically a Microsoft executive on stage to talk about Office for iPad Pro. As I said, they're a partner as well. And I looked at, at different, not just consumer groups for these tablets or so iPad Pro, for example, but even as a developer, I might choose a different device at a different time of my day and what I'm doing. I'm not pulling my whole laptop out if I get home and just want to kind of browse through the internet. I'm pulling on a tablet. I'm using a tablet. Uh, if I'm just like casually looking at notifications, that might be my watch or my phone. It's a different type of day for a different person, which is why I think it's, there's a success in all these variety of devices. Yeah, well, my laptop is also a tablet, but... Uh... <laughs> so I, I think we've covered pretty well that uh, all of these different approaches to building, whether it's an IoT-based device or an iOS or Android or Windows Phone or, or any of those things require some kind of specialized language, tools, platform uh, if you're going to build just natively for one of those devices. I think we've kind of got that squared away. So as developers here at a conference, uh, one of the, the things that I would be looking for is how do I cover as many of these bases as possible uh, with a single language or platform um, so I have the least amount of learning curve and development time and reach as many devices as I can. So let's talk a little bit about uh, some of those type of approaches, uh, which would be things like Xamarin, NativeScript, uh, Mobile Web, uh, Apache Cordova. Yeah, I mean, it's 2017. You really have to be cross-platform. I mean, don't tell me that your app isn't available on the phone that I have. Mm -hmm. uh, so as developers, I think it's our responsibility to make sure 
whatever we're doing make reaches the max audience. And I mean, devices and um, platforms shouldn't be the deterrent anymore. And, and to your point, I mean, there are lots of ways in which you go about doing this. Um, it's, it's sort of a flowchart and you kind of lean one way or the other based on your skills. I mean, if you're hardcore on the web stuff, go, go all web. If you're .NET, go all Xamarin. I think uh, that's an easy fork in the road. Yeah, and Xamarin covers how many device, well, not how many devices, but how many, you know, say platforms, because we've got, you know, the, the major two operating systems, and uh, we also have things like Tizen and watches. Yeah, everything. So this is, uh, again, one thing that I think Microsoft uh, loves saying, because Xamarin completes that .NET story. So with .NET and C Sharp, there is nothing you cannot target. Everything, every device you can target. That uh, includes iOS, Android, UWP, obviously, which immediately means uh, if you're making uh, apps with Xamarin for UWP, your apps now run on HoloLens, on Surface Hub, and all of these futuristic devices. But you also have uh, folks like Tizen and Samsung pick up their stuff. So, hey, a Samsung fridge, your Xamarin app runs on it. So I think Xamarin is one of those uh, blanket technologies which really cover all platforms. And you're doing this all from a C-sharp XAML code base using the IDE on your chosen platform, Windows or, or Mac. Now, I think there's, we're, we're leaving out, like, we're all, all four of us up here, we are .NET developers. That, that's our primary platform. But there's oh, also thanks. the rest of the world that doesn't do .NET. Yeah. Sure. <clears throat> so there's a, there's a large population out there where JavaScript and JavaScript frameworks are, this is my life. I develop on Node. And so we've, we've seen this rise in the last three years of JavaScript native frameworks where you're writing in JavaScript, you're using frameworks like Angular 2, React, uh, or Angular really is what we're calling it now. And those are running native apps on your phone. So I can use those existing skills similar to on the C-sharp Xamarin side, other skills that I might have for the web, but truly creating a native app for me at that same time. Yeah, and let's double clarify. Native meaning no web view at all. No web view at all. So when I say, hey, go put a button on my screen, it's rendering, not just rendering, but it is an iOS button, it is an Android button, and that's how it works. So, so this isn't something like uh, you're, you're writing JavaScript and it's powering some kind of HTML. You're writing JavaScript and it's being translated to the native uh, iOS or Android APIs and pulling up the native UI elements, not some web view with an HTML button. You've said it exactly right. Yeah, so it, it's an interesting distinction because the word native gets used a lot, but then what is the definition of native? When you're just using the one platform and the native tools, the original tools from that manufacturer for the platform, it's easy. But when you start using these cross-platform tools that all claim to be native, so in uh, with the Xamarin team, which uh, if, if you haven't heard, we bought Xamarin last year, so Xamarin is now part of Microsoft. Um, for the Xamarin team, the, our definition of native, and it's up to debate, I guess, it's three factors. The first one is going to be the native UI meaning that this application, the controls that you will see in the UI for that app are going to be the native controls of the platform. So not a web view, like you said, mm -hmm. not a, a custom rendering of, uh, of a control from that solution. It's basically going to be, if you put a button, it's going to be an iOS button or it's going to be an Android button or it's going to be a Windows button, the way that it would be if you had used the native tools in that platform and so on for the entire UI. The second factor is going to be uh, native performance, meaning that the app is compiled. And it's going to be compiled at least at the same level that it would be when using the native tools. So on iOS, an app is natively compiled. It's, non it's unmanaged code, just like standard C++, and it's running native code that is built against the CPU. Just like on Windows, on Windows, a UWP app is a native app. There's a lot of people that get confused because they see .NET languages like C Sharp and they use Visual Studio and it looks like .NET, but a UWP app is not a .NET app. It's an app that can follow a .NET profile, but ultimately it is compiled natively. Do a file new project, universal Windows platform, look at your targets. You will see x86, x64, and ARM. Any CPU is not there. Because the only way you can get any CPU is when you have IL code, like JIT compiled code at runtime, the way that .NET does it. 
So that that can be considered native anyways because it is JIT compiled at runtime in a CLR, but a UWP app is truly native in a sense that it's compiled by the same compiler that a C++ compiler would be using. And then Android, Android uses Java. Java is also native, but it's managed code as well in a sense that Java gets compiled into Java bytecode, and then the bytecode at runtime gets JIT compiled by the Java virtual machine, which on Android is called the Dalvik virtual machine, Dalvik VM, or the newer runtime since Android 4.4, now if I remember correctly, is ART, which is basically Android runtime. And with, with tools like Xamarin, for example, the... Um, we're not adding an extra layer on top of Android. We're simply replacing the Dalvik VM or the Android runtime with the Mono runtime so that your C-sharp code, code gets compiled to IL and then JIT compiled at runtime by the Mono runtime to generate machine code directly for ARM devices or whatever your Android is running. So that's why, so to recap, we have native UI, native performance, meaning compiled code, not interpreted at runtime, but compile at runtime or compile at, at compile time. And the final one is API access. iOS comes with its own set of iOS SDK, iOS SDK and frameworks and APIs. Android has its own, Windows has its own. And a true native application needs to be able to call 100% of all the APIs of each of the three platforms. It doesn't mean that code can be shared because there's a lot of APIs on iOS that don't exist on Android or Windows, and vice versa, or sometimes an API exists in all three, like, I don't know, Bluetooth, but those APIs are wildly different in all three, so you would have to write the code three times. But the app can be considered native if you have access to those APIs. And that was the main thing that people were complaining about things like Cordova, because Cordova gives you only a subset of those APIs. And then if you end up trying to call... APIs that are not supported in Cordova, you would have to write your own plugins and things like that. So to be truly considered native, so I don't know if you agree with this, but no, I, I do. So, UI, performance, yeah, yeah. and API. So I'm, I'm with you on the UWP and the Xamarin board and what we call native. Um, so, I But I, I mean, to also to Mike's point, um, if you look at the JavaScript native uh, side of things, it is truly native UI across all platforms. Okay. It is 100% API access across all platforms. The runtime is where it differs a little bit. And again, I mean, to, to your point about Android, it is a JavaScript virtual machine at, at runtime, you're calling the same APIs down, yes. right? So mm -hmm. is it compiling yes. a code for machine or is it interpreting it? It is taking the code and I believe it is an interpretation yes. of that code. Because I mean, you cannot really that compile code. JavaScript. <laughs> you can, but anyway, that's another thing. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, but no, but I agree that, um, so it, that's where, it, Somebody can call all of this native, but there's different yes. levels of yeah. native. Yeah. So by our definition, it meets two of three, you know? Yeah, but if you were to compare performance, uh, I'm sure that for equal code, equal skill, uh, the true native would be much faster. So I, I would but say it, not, it's a, up to not, you not, not, a, not a tremendously not faster. No. Yeah, no, so we, I think we've actually benchmarked this. I think this yeah. is one of the things that drove us, like the, the Apache Cordova type stuff is what drove uh, the engineers at Progress to build NativeScript is that we wanted the performance of native, and, and I think we've done a good job reaching, uh, you know, a ninety-nine percent yeah. uh, effort on and, that. And same with like React Native, just for honesty. I mean, what Facebook does. I mean, this is the way um, web guys can actually build native apps, and this is as close as you will ever get to the metal. Yeah. So yes, I mean, we can say three, two out of the three things are clearly checked. The third one, it's a little interpreted at runtime. It's highly optimized, like, yeah. you know. Yeah, it's very highly code, optimized. If you were to write uh, something like a game that has to take full performance of that device, um, then you may see some, some sort of uh, lag or something like that. It might not be a choice for, like, a gaming situation. In any line of business application, your end users aren't going to see any kind of performance Well, you could do difference. some massive data crunching as well. I mean, yeah, if you are running an algorithm and you're running a lot of data mm -hmm. loops and everything, then that's where compiled code would, you know. Yeah. We all know how developers are. Developers are very opinionated. They can be very, there's a lot of purists out there. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of developers, if it's not machine code for the CPU, it's not native. But it could still be optimized and be adequate, I would say, like good enough for the scenario you have. As you said, if it's 99% or 90%, some developers might be okay with 
it depends on what your needs are, what your users also are going to demand. Let's let's talk about those user demands a little bit. Yeah. So uh, a lot of these tools depend a lot on what your skill set is or what your team's skill set is. So let's talk a little bit about that because we've got uh, something like Xamarin that's C-sharp and XML, uh, and we've got uh, NativeScript that is uh, H uh, XML, CMS, uh, CSS, and JavaScript. So a lot of that plays into what are your team skills and who, even what is a talent pool like? Who can you hire? That's the number one consideration, mm -hmm. by the way. I get that question all the time. I'm building a mobile project. Should I use Xamarin? Should I use Cordova? Should I use NativeScript? Whatever. The number one question I always ask them is, what is the skill set of your team today? Period. If they tell me that they're a web shop, even though I love Xamarin and that's by far my favorite way of doing things, I will not tell a web shop to go with Xamarin because that's a disservice to them because they already have the skill to build maybe something in Cordova or at least using JavaScript is going to be easier for them because they probably already know it. So always go with the skill set of your team first. And you know another consideration is what else are you doing, right? So if you are a .NET shop and you have a whole lot of investments into XAML technologies and you have WPF apps, you're building UWP apps, uh, Xamarin is a very automatic choice because not only can you share your skills, but you can start sharing some code. And the same goes with the website of things. If you already have an Angular web app, if you already are uh, have like a JavaScript-powered uh, uh, full-featured enterprise app, uh, look at these JavaScript-powered uh, mobile technologies because you will end up sharing some code between web and mobile, and that's a win-win. And I get the question of, yes, we're, we want to do Cordova or we want to go JavaScript native. Our team does either React or Angular. Those are pretty, too, pretty much the two competing frontline JavaScript frameworks that you're going to see on the web today if you're going that route, especially for um, single-page apps. And it's going to be, if your team is comfortable with React, take a look at React Native. If you do Angular or Angular 2 or Angular in general, then you're going to want to look at NativeScript because those options are available to you. So let's talk a little bit more about um, the, the web developer side of this because we talked about, you know, if you have a uh, web forms heavy or, or Windows heavy development team, and uh, you have a web friendly development team. These are the choices. Uh, what if you already have web applications that are deployed and they run fine in the browser, and the browser works on most mobile devices? So why can't I just use my existing application and make make it mobile? So you're essentially asking: Is mobile web still a legit strategy? Absolutely. Yes, and I mean yes and no. So I think it depends again on the app. If it's a line of business app, and if you do not want to dive into the device's specific features, and if you do not have any monetization needs, you do not need that app to be in the store, like your local restaurant, your ch local church, or whatever schools, yes, it's, it's a great option. I mean, there, there's... I don't want to interrupt you. I, don't, I wouldn't whittle it down to, to restaurant apps and schools. Oh, so I'm sure. Yes, yeah. Line of business applications as well, behind your firewall, don't yep. need to be in a store, and they can be rather uh, large and uh, fully featured. Yeah, sure. And uh, again, I mean, mobile web is, I mean, what we call mobile web is also kind of evolving, right? So maybe we'll get into like progressive web apps uh, eventually, but there's this whole idea that the web can be a really nice distribution model. Um, you just don't have the store presence. And uh, again, the stores are, can be a mixed bag. Like I might almost argue like uh, iOS uh, or Apple stores and Microsoft stores having these millions of apps, it makes it hard to find your apps, right? So if you are just a line of business app, but even like a B2C app, and you just want consumers to find you with a link, then yeah, I mean, mobile web still works, knowing that you will have some limitations of how much you can do on the device. My question always to a business when they say, we need an app, is the first question is, why? Right. What aren't you achieving with the solution you have today? Is there a business demand, something driving you to go and invest that money to build the app? Maybe it's really marketability for you to say, we have an app, and just to have that. And maybe that is the reason, but you really have to have that discussion first to determine, is this going to get me something more than I have today? Is it intended to bring a new line of business to us? What is that business driver for this? The question also is, who are your users and where are they located? It's very easy to just keep like an American mindset where we live in our 4G LTE networks and get access to everything. And we get Wi-Fi everywhere. Um, but... 
if your app needs to reach the users that are in other parts of the world, uh, I could show you a map, for example, of uh, data, cellular data coverage in India and Africa. And um, you, you look at the map at first and say like, well, it's not too bad. But then the moment I turn off like 3G and 4G and only show you like the areas where, or rather where you only have access to 3G and 4G, now it becomes very, very small because most of these users are still on 2G data cellular, which is extremely slow. So the big difference between an app and mobile web is that the app you download once. So maybe you've downloaded it when you were over Wi-Fi. And there's a lot of people that's actually what they do. They don't have connectivity where they live. So they go to a village or a town where they get access to Wi-Fi. They download their apps. They get access to their news. They download their data. They do their banking. And then they go back to their village where now they're in offline mode the entire time. If you have a pure web solution, it's possible to do offline, but you're going to have to jump through a lot more hoops. And when they are connected, if you're connected over 2G, you would prefer to just exchange a little bit of data rather than having to download all of the HTML markup that's required to power a web app, including the images and the HTML code and everything, because everything is baked together. So that's where an app is going to be superior for those kinds of users. So ask yourself, where are the users? Where do they use it? And it doesn't have to be rural Africa. It could be rural America where there's areas where you only have like one bar in a certain situation. So you, ha you have to ask yourself, where are the users located? Yeah, I was so going to add to your point and say, uh, we are in Louisville, Kentucky recording this. And everybody in the room, has, if they're not from Louisville, it, they've probably traveled from Ohio or Tennessee maybe. You're going to drive through those areas. Yeah. Like yep. you're, you're coming through anywhere south of here is going to be, uh, you know, you know, very low bars or you're on the edge network. Um, and there are lots and lots of farms and businesses throughout those areas. And there's been a lot of IoT automation, uh, mobile devices, and all kinds of computing devices being deployed into the farming um, industry. Uh, so you see a lot of stuff out there. And if you're on a farm in the middle of uh, somewhere in Ohio or, or Tennessee or even Kentucky, you're, you're probably not going to have... Uh, some kind of strong so, internet connection. You guys are just describing like a Sunday morning ritual where I walk a mile and I get my water for the week and I get some apps <laughs> <laughs> just to last me the whole week. So, I mean, yes, that, that's a legit consideration. But also, if you look at um, what the mobile web is kind of morphing into, uh, you guys uh, see Google kind of push progressive web apps big time. Mm -hmm. So maybe we can just have a quick uh, definition of what that means. So the idea is... Um, Every website can be a nicely uh, fully featured app on your on your phone, and it's not easy to do. It's an, it, not every website can do that. It's, it's an engineering effort. Um, so the idea is, you will download the app. It's a spa. You download the app one time when you when you, when you put it up uh, for the first time, and then it does a whole bunch of offline caching for you. It has service workers running uh, in the background, and you can actually pin the app as uh, an icon on your home screen, where you're giving it prime real estate. And beyond that point, you can walk back to your village and you'll still have uh, an app that kind of works like an app that you get from the store. And there, there was uh, some word about Google surfacing these progressive web apps in their store as well. Uh, they, I don't know if they're going to be located in the same uh, positions as the actual native applications, but there will be a section or something that's going to show these uh, progressive web apps. Yeah. So mm -hmm. they'll be installable from the store even. Um, whether whether that allows you to pay for them or not is yet to be seen. I, I don't know if that's something that's a capability. Yeah, this is all new. We're trying to figure this out. Yeah. Yes, yes, sir. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, to you your reiterate it, so we can. Yeah. So uh, he, he, the audience here, made a comment that at, uh, at Build, Microsoft announced that Bing crawlers will actually uh, list out these progressive web apps uh, in store or in a, some some other way as you search. So I mean, to answer your initial question, like, is mobile app or mobile web still a legit strategy? Yes, very much so. And it, it depends on um, the type of app you're building and the audience, and again, uh, what type of code base you want to keep maintaining. Okay, we got a question. Um, 
how will Project Rome affect all of this? What, what is Project Rome to get? What is Project first? Rome? Um, so first of all, I'm not the authority of Project Rome, but uh, at least from what I can tell you. Um, so first, first of all, to understand Project Rome, you have to understand the Microsoft Graph. The Microsoft Graph is basically the um, kind of like the sum total of everything that you know about a user. So of course, at first it starts more as a corporate kind of like graph where you know about uh, who the user is, who they work for, the contact info, but then it could also be like the documents that they're, that they're storing in, in uh, OneDrive Business or SharePoint, um, what kind of like email messages they've exchanged. So it's basically all sorts of information. Everything is secured, of course, to the sense that you don't have access to stuff that you're not, you're not supposed to see. Um, so Project Rome is now being able to have like applications, any kind of application. They could be web-based, they could be mobile, they could be desktop-based that participate as part of the, of the Microsoft Graph so that you could start an experience on one device and finish it on another device very easily. So at the moment that you are launching an application on one, doing some work, then later when you switch to another device, that device, that app could, if it's Rome, like graph enabled, gonna tell you like, hey, this is where you were over there. Do you want to continue working where, uh, basically on your work, on your document or your email or your process or whatever you were doing with someone. So it's about carrying people from device to device and preserving the experience instead of forcing people to think in terms of form factors and device families and having to finish everything to go into one place or another. It requires developer participation, of course. The developers will have to then use Project Chrome to uh, connect basically to the Microsoft Graph and understand its experience, and the SDK is gonna help you to uh, to create that experience for users. And then that's the point Mike was making, and I think something like this is continuity of user experience, and it almost has to be cross-platform because like throughout the day, like I, I'm on Windows, I'm on my phone, I'm on my Xbox, I mean, you want that experience to follow you around. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right, and Project Chrome is not just about Windows. Yep. It's about if you're on iOS, it's about if you're on Android, if you're on the web, on anything. I, as a part of my normal day, I'm constantly on three or four different devices, not necessarily my network domain joint computer, but I'm also on my Mac, on my Surface Book, I go over to my phone, I go into customers' computers too but I still have that kind of same identity that I bring with me. And I think this concept of an identity is important to the whole concept of the graph in Rome, where I've got my corporate domain identity that I'm bringing with me, and it's all about continuity for that experience with you. Yeah, I think, I think we didn't quite uh, cover all of the web stuff uh, that, that I thought we should cover, so I'm gonna kind of bring it back that way a little bit, and um, I'll make a good segue here, because you guys are talking about um, using devices, uh, using multiple devices throughout the day, uh, using them in different scenarios. And, uh, you know, when you're using those different devices, sometimes you might be using a, an app that's native, and then you might go to your desktop and sit down and use something that is a web-based application, but they're both the same, um, you know, application as a whole. So you have these companion apps. Um, you know, Office does this very well. Uh, Microsoft Office has uh, very good online tools. Uh, you can go right in and edit uh, a web or a uh, Word document or Excel document right in the web um, if you don't have the capability to install that on your device. Um, so, uh, with mobile responsive web, um, it, it doesn't mean that uh, any one of these technologies is dead. Mobile web isn't dead. Uh, you know, responsive web apps aren't dead, PWAs um, may be part of the future, but you can have this ecosystem of uh, companion apps and, um, you know, the larger application may be a web app, but, you know, something like a uh, expense reporting application, you may need the ability to use your camera and take the application with you uh, and take photos of your receipts and have that uploading into the larger web application that you use at your desktop. I think towards that point, Ed, you'll see all of the platforms are starting to move towards the availability of having, you have your web portal for the app or a UWP app, for example, and then using and sharing a lot of that code across over to the mobile side. And there's different strategies and different ways that they're doing that, but 
you want to preserve that experience. And also from the development side, I don't want to write an app for my mobile and then have to go worry about that desktop or web app that I'm going to deploy that's more fully functioned to the web. I should only have to do that maybe one and a half times. It's never going to be equal one. I'm going to do it once everywhere necessarily because I'm going to have a little bit different experience on both sides because of form factors. But you'll see all of the vendors are pushing towards that to make it easier for us to have a single way to do and match across all the platforms. Yeah, I think it's an important point to make while we're all up here on a panel like this that, uh, you know, it's not a versus so much. Uh, we're not trying to kill off each other. It's it's not a battle. Uh, there's a lot of uh, cooperation between these different platforms. And sometimes you need to build different strategies to cover all your bases. Uh, so let's let's talk a little bit more about like IoT devices and non-traditional mobile. You know, not not the the, the small screens. Let's talk a little bit about like IoT, uh, mixed reality stuff like that. That's it's um, well, I mean, actually, the first thing I would talk about is what I, what I was just covering in a session before this. So, uh, who attended my bot framework session just before this one? All right, because that's the our tagline at Microsoft, anyways, is that bots are basically the new apps. And the reason for uh, for using that term is that um, when you interact with software, you're using either like a computer or a phone, a touchscreen, a mouse, uh, some voice maybe, but it's mostly touchscreen, mouse, and keyboard that you're using. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet, when you interact with other human beings, how do you do it? You talk to them. Maybe you chat with them using like plain natural language, whichever language you you speak. Um, maybe you um, those chat channels can be various. They can be like over Facebook. They can be over Skype, over WhatsApp, SMS messages. We send email to people. So it's interesting that how we're we're trying to make software smarter and smarter, but yet our way of interacting with software is very different from the way that we interact with other humans. And the premise of bots is that by turning our software into these intelligent code services, we can now chat with that software the same way that we chat with humans. And better yet, we can even have like a three-way conversation between two humans and maybe a bot. So that's, and again, just like we're not trying to say that one thing is gonna completely trump the other and, and get rid of everything else, bots are not gonna eliminate the need for apps, of course. But just like I can go into my Uber app and say, I want to call an Uber, enter my location, and then see a map of where it's coming from, and then call the car. I could very easily also just pull up in the middle of a chat and say, uh, at Uberbot, I want a car. And then connects the location services, knows where I am, and then shows like, well, we have this car X minute away. The fare would be about this much. Do you want the bot? Do you want the car? Yes. Or where are you going, for example? So I want to go there. Is this the address where you want to go? You can even show a map in a chat conversation. And then you want to order the car, you can either type yes or no, or, or bots can even show you sometimes buttons yes or no. It doesn't have to be all text-based. So for a lot, if you, if you have someone maybe that they're on a different device or um, they don't have the Uber app installed right now, they can easily just connect to a bot with, with uh, depending on channels, or maybe they have someone who's coming over and now they say, let me call a car, and then they can immediately do it in chat while they're chatting with the other person, and the other person will know what the ETA is for Uber before they have to show up so they can hop on. So it's all these little scenarios that will start integrating into our day-to-day -day lives with other human beings while still using software, and that's where bots are, are pretty cool. So I think, I mean, to his point, um, if you look at IoT and HoloLens and all of these other devices, is this type of development, I mean, we are still kind of tied to native platforms, right? We are not talking cross-platform yet on these devices. Uh, yes and no. Yes and um, no. So yes and no. First of all, uh, you have to understand, IoT is the Internet of Things. So IoT is typically going to be machine to machine. The, the human comes into play whenever you want to know What's going on with your IoT devices, the data that is coming in, what's the status? But typically a good IoT set, setup is, is going to be autonomous. It can run on its own. It's going to have intelligence by analyzing sensors out there. And then if something needs to be turned off 
or activated or deactivated, depending on the status of certain sensors, then it has all the intelligence to do so. So it's called machine to machine or pervasive computing or uh, embedded computing. There's a lot of terms for it. Mm -hmm. So the key is that we're talking about mobile development and these devices are mobile devices, but they're mobile devices that talk to each other. And can you, can you do cross platform? Well, again, it depends on the platform you're using. IoT, first of all, is the, if you think mobile is diverse with platforms, IoT is an explosion mm -hmm. of hardware. From devices that have megabytes to gigabytes of memory to devices that only have kilobytes of memory. When, when you're in a kilobytes memory environment, you can't start bringing in these extra tools that give you a platform adaptation layer so that you can reuse code from another platform. But it depends what you're running. So for example, if we look at a, a very popular device in the IoT world, like the Raspberry Pi, then natively the Raspberry Pi will either run one or more flavors of Linux. We also run Windows 10 IoT Core on it. And the programming model for Windows 10 IoT Core is UWP. The same thing that you can use as part of a Xamarin project when you're building C Sharp with iOS and Android. So yeah, we can actually participate this way. But if I'm using an Arduino, now I'm just writing low-level C++ code. C++, by definition, is cross-platform, but the APIs you're calling are going to be very different. But maybe there's a library that you want to call from your application that would be shared. So that's why it's yes and no, because a lot of these tools will have their own native platforms. But if you want to share code with IoT, then yeah, it's possible. You can share C-sharp code. Uh, Node is also very popular in IoT circles, mm -hmm. where usually you're going to might have a bunch of sensors, and you're going to have maybe a smarter brain running again on something like uh, an Intel Edison or Raspberry Pi running a Node application, and then simply taking control of weaker microcontrollers. So I would say, again, C++, C-sharp, and Node or probably the, yeah, that's, the best that's what ways I was, to I was getting it. to because like with JavaScript you can do lots of uh, these IoT things. There are lots of frameworks, not just Node.js, uh, where you can yeah. do native JavaScript on these uh, devices. I, th I think we saw in a session the other day where uh, I think it's uh, <laughs> all things that platform mm -hmm. uh, being installed and it's running native JavaScript or running JavaScript directly on a on a small microcontroller. You have other frameworks like Johnny Five framework that can, you can interact with JavaScript on a uh, microcontroller as well. Yeah, to just add some more confusion to the mix, uh, you also have, you know, a lot of the things that you guys are mentioning are, are like kind of ultra-modern uh, ways of doing IoT. Uh, you also see, you know, ancient, you know, machinery out there uh, that's, you know, maybe 50 years old even. They have programmable logic controllers in them. And uh, the manufacturers of these things update them by, you know, just jamming a board in there that's got wireless capabilities, and all of a sudden it's an IoT device. Well, what's what's different? Yes, that's been around forever. What we're seeing now is this is more accessible to the average developer. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And and aside from that, I look at how are you going to be building and deploying and keeping these devices up to date with security. Security, especially in IoT, is an incredible concern. It's like, do I really want to connect a light bulb where that company is going to go out of business potentially in two or three years to my home network, to my business network? I better make sure that I can update that platform. I can keep it walled off from all the other parts of my network. It's like, these, these are real concerns. And as IoT begins to explode, the attack vectors do as well. Yeah. Things are the new apps. <laughs> so, Lots of the new apps. There's a lot of apps out there. <laughs> Uh, so we have we have you know the IoT machine to machine mobile. Um, we also have where where we've got our devices and we throw them in a piece of cardboard and stick them on our face. Let's talk a little bit about that experience. So yeah, VR mixed reality. So again, it, this is where it's it's all platform dependent. Uh, on the Google side of things, they're very Android centric. So again, you're going to be able to reuse any of the same tools for Android to create those experiences from native Java with Android Studio to using Xamarin. Uh, or of course, in, in the case of VR uh, and, um, and mixed reality, since it's us usually you're dealing with a 3D environment, this is where people are going to start looking at 3D engines to actually do this. And that's where Unity comes into play. And Unity is probably the world's most popular game, like I would say AAA class game engine and certainly one of the most powerful as well. 
And what's very interesting is that Unity's cross-platform, it supports virtually everything from WebGL to PC like Linux, desktop, Mac, iOS, Android, Windows Store, uh, Tizen, and uh, PS4, PS Vita, Xbox, Nintendo, and everything. And the way to do this is via Mono. And because the Mono framework, again, lets you run C-sharp code everywhere, they, you use a few techniques also called IL to C++, where they convert the IL code directly to C++, so they can natively compile for the platform, but it's all rooted originally in Mono. So in a way, the way I explain it is, Unity is to games what Xamarin is to apps, because it's all based on the Mono framework, both of them are. So I find it interesting that these alternatives to .NET are almost as old as .NET itself. Like Mono has been around since like 2003, 2002. Yeah. So I mean that's when like Miguel and those guys started the process of taking .NET compiled code onto these other platforms, and mm -hmm. now you see all of these things light up because of Mono. .NET is awesome. And C yeah. Sharp is the best. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I, I agree. No bias there at all. No bias. Um, so I, I've tried the other stuff. And <laughs> real, real quick, you said AR and MR. Um, VR and or, MR. Sorry, VR and MR. Uh, for those listening who may have not heard these terms before, let's kind of... Okay, uh, so yeah. you've got the, 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 the three main umbrella terms. You have virtual reality, I think is the one that most people are familiar with. Virtual reality is all about being immersive. You are tricking your senses that, into believing that you are in a world that doesn't exist. So it requires a headset where you completely mask your view and you can see a stereoscopic display that will basically create a 3D world for you. You'll typically wear headphones that completely isolate the sounds around you, so it's very immersive. So the one that makes you puke. That's VR. <laughs> well, I mean, so in all fairness, because you're tricking your senses, uh, especially when it comes to spatial orientation and your inner ear and equilibrium, um, if, if the motions of your body are not matching the, your field of vision, so that means if you move your head and there's the slightest delay in between the motion of your head and the, and the display being updated, then this is where you, this is where you can induce motion sickness. And it's said that the the barrier to at least be, be below the threshold of motion sickness is eight milliseconds. So you have to be able to track the user and move around. And even then, at eight milliseconds, it can be considered a threshold. So imagine being able to track a user in space and then being able to transform that into a new position and render the environment in 8 milliseconds, it's pretty high. Um, so the moment you go to 10, 20, 50 milliseconds, then people get really sick. Yeah, and, and that's why you have the Oculus Rifts like rendering 90 FPS per eye, and you need these huge gigs to actually run the thing. Exactly, because it takes a lot of power to do so. You need to be tethered. And uh, yeah, so I would say Oculus Rift um, and HTC Vive based on Steam VR, probably some of the most popular platform. Same thing with Google um, uh, Cardboard and Daydream as well. Um, and then, of course, now on the, well, I'll get back to that one. Uh, on the other side of the spectrum, we have augmented reality, which is purely, you can see the world around you, but we're simply adding an overlay of information on top of the world. So think the Iron Man suit, you know, where you can see data. Uh, think uh, jet fighters, with basically, which is the original heads-up display, where they could see a projection on the glass in front of them to see uh, additional data. Uh, Pokemon Go, where you're just lifting your phone and looking at the camera to find Pokemons, or the, those like AR... Uh, mapping like directional apps where you can see like there's a McDonald's there, there's a on your camera, there's a Starbucks over there at this distance and everything simply using your compass and your accelerometer and your GPS. And then we have kind of like in the middle, we have mixed reality. Mixed reality is where you're blending the two. You're blending the real world, you're blending the virtual world, but instead of just putting a layer of information, you're truly creating a 3D hologram and that hologram can be in front of a physical object or it can be behind a physical object because you have spatial perception that comes into play where it knows that there's a table here, that there's a floor, that there's a wall. And then if I put a hologram behind the table, even though it's always rendered on top because you, you've got a display on your face, uh, it knows to occlude the hologram, the hologram based on the spatial mesh that is detected by this table. And all of this has to be done in real time. So anybody attend my HoloLens talk yesterday? A few people, yeah. So I demoed all of this. This is all real. It's been shipping for a year. And we call it mixed reality. By the way, this is not a term that we coined. It's a term we adopted because it goes so far beyond what augmented reality does 
because it is truly blending the real world and this virtual world together. And in the case of HoloLens um, or any or Windows Mixed Reality, really, we actually are using UWP for this. So again, you can share your code with iOS and with Android as well. So we're, we're getting close to our time. Let's give a quick shout out to some of the tools that we talked about today. Uh, we talked about Xamarin. You can find that uh, at Xamarin.com. Xamarin.com. Uh, it's baked in Visual Studio now. So when you install Visual Studio 2017, you can choose your workloads. Cross-platform mobile development with C Sharp is part of that. So by installing this, it will bring in all the dependencies. And I'm on a Mac, and you get Visual Studio for Mac now, which is beautiful. Yes, Visual same, Studio for Mac. Almost yes. the same exact dev experience. And I mean, the, the tools of the ecosystem have gotten pretty rich. There are plugins, there are component stores, and there are sharp UI controls. Uh, so again, don't try to reinvent the wheel. If your app needs professional look and feel, uh, look at some of the UI controls that you can get out of the box, uh, like we make some. Um, so that's that's Xamarin. That's, uh, you're kind of staying in the ID of your choice, on the platform of your choice, and you're you're writing a single code base. And then we have NativeScript, yep. NativeScript.org. So I'll let Mike speak yep. to that. Uh, what are the, some of the tools? Some of the tools I would look at across both Mac and Windows are, I use Visual Studio Code. VS Code is an awesome editor. It is an absolutely awesome editor. And Who uses I, VS Code here? Just curious. A lot of hands. Yeah. By the way, VS Code, free, cross-platform, and open source. So. so I'm using that across both my Mac and on the Windows side and using Node.js underneath with uh, NativeScript to run the development for that with the NativeScript libraries. You can go to nativescript.org, click Getting Started. Yep, nativescript.org, click Getting Started. You can start off with just plain old JavaScript if that's what you love. Or if you do Angular development, then you can start off and write with Angular and TypeScript and write apps using that way. And then we talked about Unity. Go to unity.com. Uh, it's uni Well, unity.com is the main with Unity site. It's technically unity3d.com. And then from there, you can get the tools. There's a whole learning section. And it's a, it's, a, it's a tool that's easy to get started with, but can take a lifetime to master because it is a professional-grade uh, game engine that is used even by AAA studios. And uh, what about UWP? UWP, just go to dev.windows.com. Yeah, dev.windows.com. And yep. from there, you'll see all the different areas that are supported from IoT and mixed reality and uh, mobile and traditional Windows desktop. So it's all there. And uh, some of our teams have worked very closely together on that with uh, Telerik UI from yeah, UWP, yeah. So, uh, which is free and open source. Go ahead, Sam. You know, I was just going to bring up the open source aspect of this. I mean, a lot of the tools of our trade are now open source, which is which is fantastic. It's very uh, a nice collaborative environment. Uh, Xamarin open sourced all of their SDKs in the entire framework last year. That's open.xamarin.com. So if you need to build from source and if you want to contribute back, I mean, they're they're accepting like upwards of 700 pull requests in, in a year. Uh, and I mean, uh, everybody is trying to chime in. Um, on the UWP side of things, uh, there are lots of tools. There's the UWP Community Toolkit, uh, yeah. which is a community collaboration with Microsoft. Uh, we have our U UI for UWP suite, which is a UI suite uh, of about two dozen controls. That's all open source. Windows uh, Template Studio. Yep. Uh, it, it's all, again, integrated with uh, your UI. So, again, most of these tool sets, I mean, NativeScript is entirely open source, and all the plugins and everything is open source. So, uh, again, I mean, uh, as you are working with these things, know that you have choice of your IDE, of the tools that you want to use, and uh, much of the tooling um, and UI is also open sourced. And... Uh, contribute back because I mean that that's how we all kind of give back our little two cents into the ecosystem. I'm gonna go ahead and wrap things up. I, I want to thank everybody on the panel for being here today. Uh, thank you guys for joining us. Uh, hopefully we we provided a great discussion for everyone. Again, yeah, we'll, we'll go down the list here. We have uh, Sam Basu. Yeah. So again, uh, parting thoughts are look around. You have you have lots of choices when you want to do mobile. Again, to Mike's point, ask why you're doing mobile and what is it that you're trying to do. What's the kind of code base you want to maintain? What's the kind of code sharing you want to achieve, and then look around at tools. The tools and ecosystem have come a long, long way, so choose something that you are really fond of and you want to maintain and it serves your needs. Nick, closing thoughts? Always learn, guys. That's the key. Always learn. You're at the right place to do this, of course, you uh, by coming to a conference, uh, but definitely uh, keep learning. Uh, if you're a web devel developer, go into mobile. If you're already into mobile, go into VR and MR. Learn bots. Learn IoT. Seriously, go. always learn. Developers are kings now. If you don't like what you do, it's on you. Nick? Mike? Sorry. <laughs> That's I, okay. Nick is Mike's brother's name, so <laughs> I, can, uh, I can be at fault there. Yeah, I, I would say 
stick with what you know while you're learning. So as you're going into as you're going to mobile, still explore, but use what you know. If, if yeah. you do web stuff, go go a web route. If you do C sharp.net, Xamarin's an awesome choice. Go Xamarin. Yeah, and then thank you guys so much for joining us. Thank this you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.